Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Okay, with that, we're going to continue our series, Christ the King, Seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And today, uh, I am in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and the title of today's message is Jesus and the Paralytic. Now remember, the the Gospel of Mark is really not just a book that sort of gives a a series of theological assertions about Jesus. Uh, There are other places in Scripture that do that. This Gospel is really sort of Jesus the action hero, where you see him moving from scene to scene, doing signs and wonders, doing things you would expect God to do if he came to this world. Here we are again in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I'm reading out of the ESV. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts as was prayed in Ephesians 1, that we'd know the hope of our calling and the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, that the way you love this man is the way you love your people, the way you love those who come to you in humility and faith. And I pray we'd see that love today and you would take our hearts up and in more into the gospel as we partake of this bread of life together. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story happens uh, because of the disobedience of the leper that Jesus healed at the end of chapter one. We talked about that last week, how Jesus healed this leper and he told him, he sternly charged him. Remember, he snorted with anger is the the meaning of the word ekbalo that, that describes how Jesus spoke to the leper. He said, don't tell anyone what I've done. Well, I mean, the guy was healed of leprosy and he just went out and began to proclaim what had happened, that it was disobedient to Christ. And, and, and that passage says because of that, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because people were coming to him from everywhere. Now Jesus is just trying to go home and get some rest and this whole thing uh, transpires. But Jesus, he can't openly enter a village and uh, even at his house. He's inundated with people who are coming to hear him teach and to receive miracles from his hand. 
Now, the whole thing seems absurd, doesn't it? I mean, these guys get to the house, they're like, man, it's pretty full. Who had the idea? Hey, let's, uh, let's, why don't we just take the roof off? <laughs> let's go up to the top and just cut a hole in the roof. Can you imagine a pizza guy, you know, coming to your house to deliver pizza? Just kind of finds the door locked. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and cut a hole in the roof, cuts a hole in the roof and drops the pizza down before your family is there watching football games. You're like, what the heck are you doing? I don't know. The front door was locked. I just thought I'd cut a hole in the roof. I mean, it's kind of what happens here. They want to come to this meeting. Well, it wasn't even a meeting. I mean, Jesus is probably trying to get some rest. He's at home. People start coming from everywhere. And Jesus, in his hospitality and his kindness and generosity, begins to serve people. House is full. Well, let's cut a hole in the roof. And my second thought, sort of humorous thought, I guess, from this text is, I mean, they've ruined his roof. Like, I mean, in, in, in modern homes, I mean, roofs can cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to put on. Can you imagine having to owe Jesus some money because you, you damaged his roof? I'm not sure how that played out, but you know, like, I don't know, like I, I can imagine owing my neighbor some money for something or our construction worker who, you know, works on my house or a handyman. Can you imagine like the carpenter Jesus, like you, you owing Jesus some money uh, where you get an invoice from, you know, uh, Joseph and Jesus construction, I guess. I don't know what it would have been, but as Jesus, maybe he repaired his own roof. He was a carpenter. Well, the humorous observations aside, this story does tell us that being on mission for God will sometimes cost you something. Jesus was a servant to others. He was obedient to his father. And that service and that obedience cost him something. Uh, Ministry isn't always convenient. Um, ministry costs you your comfort. It costs you time. It costs you resources. There's sacrifices to be made. And here's Jesus in the privacy of his own home. Uh, can't even enjoy the a time of relaxation and rest and recharging his batteries. Like, you know, people are coming to him from everywhere. It's, you know, sometimes ministry doesn't wait. Sometimes ministry comes knocking at the door uh, at times you don't expect. And, and, and yet we're you know, not that we shouldn't rest, and, and, and of course there's principles of rest that are solid and good, but I think the picture here is ministering to other people costs you comfort. It costs you convenience. It costs you time. You can't have this, you know, nice little tidy life packaged with a bow. If you're available to serve people, um, that can ruin your rhythms. It can ruin your comforts, but it's all worth it for the glory of God and for, for the opportunity to love and serve others. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what I'm going to call the four power truths out of this text of scripture. What do I mean by that? What are power truths? Truths, Power truths are truths that have the power to change your life. Four power truths that we see in this this text, and, and we're going to see it in these four ways. Number one, the paralytic's deepest need. Number two, his condition. Number three, the role of his friends in his miracle. And number four, what this story tells us about Jesus. So let's talk about the paralytic's deepest need. Verse five says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, can we just pause and and think about what just happened there? I mean, these four friends take all this effort to bring this 
lame friend of theirs, this paralytic, you know, to, to Jesus, who, who obviously lost use of his limbs, or at least his legs, um, go through all this effort to bring him to Jesus, drop him before Jesus, and everyone present in that room knew why this guy was there. Why his friends went through all that effort to bring him to Jesus. And it probably wasn't that his sins would be forgiven. What seemed obvious was that this guy is lame, laying on a mat, and he needs a miracle. And Jesus is capable of miracles. And Jesus says, hey, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's like, um, hey, somebody want to tell Jesus what this guy's here for? Somebody want to tell Jesus that this guy is here to receive a miracle in his body? This is, he's not here for a, sort of a you know, spiritual, psychological counseling session about his sins. Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. You see, everybody in that room knew, thought they knew what his greatest need was. The, the paralytic thought he knew what his greatest need was. The friends of the paralytic thought they knew what this man's greatest need was. Oh, that he would walk again. But Jesus knew, actually, what his greatest need was, his deepest need, and it was forgiveness. It was that his heart would be right with God. And in the same way, many people in this world think they know what their greatest need is. You might be listening to this, thinking, I know what my greatest need is. I need a financial breakthrough. I, I, I need to be healed of this, uh, this pain that I have or this, this problem that I have. My marriage needs to be better. Listen, all solid stuff, important stuff in our lives. But look at this story. Jesus bypassed all of that. He knew what this man's greatest need was, and it was that he would be forgiven. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the wording of that verse is very interesting. Notice it says, peace with God. It doesn't say the peace of God. Now, there is a peace of God that's good and important and helpful in our lives, where God gives us peace about our circumstances or calms fears in our hearts or calms our worries. But that's not what Romans 5, 1 is talking about. And that's not what, what's happening in this story in Mark chapter 2. This is peace with God. This tells us that we were at war with God. There was not peace between heaven and earth. It's not a good place to be, be at war with God. We were against him. And worse, he was against us because of our sin. Psalm 711 says this, God is a just judge and is angry with the wicked every day. A lot of people don't like to think about God as, an, as a, an angry God. But we need to understand that his anger or his wrath is in the context of his justice and judgment, his legal justice and judgment that he brings on sin. And that's what good judges do, isn't it? They they bring justice to a situation. They wouldn't be good. We don't consider a judge good if they don't bring justice to a situation that requires it. So 
it's a picture of having someone who's guilty in the eyes of the court. Now, the, the judge might even like the guy, you know, who's, who's guilty, who's committed crimes against, you know, who's broken the law. But the judge would still have what you might call judicial anger or judicial wrath for this person that has committed these crimes. The, the judge might even say, man, I like this kid. I grew up with his dad. But this kid, this guy broke the law. So he says to the, so he says to the guilty man, I feel bad for you and for your family, but I'm against you. And it's my responsibility to punish you, to see to it that justice is served. Now, the Bible is very clear on this point when it teaches that all of us are like that man in that court. All of us have sinned. We've all broken God's law. We've all committed high treason against heaven. And the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. You think, well, I'm worthy of death because of my sin? Listen, if you've committed treason against your country in America, that's punishable by death even in, in America, in like modern Western progressive America. And what do you think high treason against heaven is worth? How do you think that's treated? It's no different. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But back to Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. So what does it mean to be justified? Sometimes we lose the meaning of words because we only hear the old English, you know, or Shakespearean accents, you know. Have you been justified? Your merit is your justification. You know, you kind of hear these, these Shakespearean uh, use of those words and we kind of can lose the meaning. But the word justified is very important in the gospel. It means to be in a right relationship to God's law. It's a place we all want to be where the wrath of the judge is removed. The crosshairs of the judge, the judicial anger of the judge is no longer aimed at me or at you. And so what was the paralytic's greatest need? It was that his sins would be forgiven. It's his greatest need and it's our greatest need. Now again, Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God. Jesus, through his cross and his resurrection, gave us peace, not, the, just, not just the peace of God, but peace with God, the war that we had with God. You know, the war between heaven and earth has been, has been calmed. And now we have peace with God. So that's the paralytic's deepest need, is that his sins would be forgiven. The second thing we see is, is his condition, the condition in which he came. Well, he, clearly he's helpless. He can't go anywhere, do anything without the help of someone else. And this paralytic is a picture physically of what we all are spiritually. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, think about it. If, if you're poor, it means you, you are in poverty. So you're in poverty spiritually. Jesus is saying, he's not saying that spiritual poverty is, is a good uh, destination. 
uh, he's saying it's good to recognize that, that you, you are in spiritual poverty. To recognize your spiritual poverty, theirs is the kingdom. So when you recognize your spiritual poverty, then you see your need for grace. You see your need for God. You see your need for the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus and his work on earth and his work on the cross begins to look necessary and beautiful. So to be poor in spirit means that you recognize that without grace, you are spiritually bankrupt. One commentary writer paraphrases it like this. When he's, when he's talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, blessed are the beggars. Blessed are the beggars. For they receive the riches of Christ. Jonathan Edwards famously said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We can't save ourselves. We're poor in spirit. We're helpless, just like this man. We're helpless spiritually, just like he was helpless physically. This man couldn't save himself. He was helpless. But Jesus, like we saw with the leper last week, shows compassion and mercy on this man, and he heals him. Why? Because at the end of the story, just like last week, at the end of the book, I want you to think about the great exchange, the substitution that takes place as Jesus takes the place of this poor, paralyzed man. Because at the end of the book, Jesus has all four of his limbs pierced and immobilized. At the end of the story, this paralytic is healed at the end of Mark, by the end of Mark 2, but by the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus becomes like a paralytic on the cross. Jesus became a paralytic for us so that we could be healed. He became a spiritual paralytic in some ways physically for us and for this man so that we could be healed. He recognized his helplessness and he recognized maybe this man and like us trying to climb a ladder to get to God through our good works or through our merits, through our religiosity. And God looks down, he says, they'll never make it to me. I'll go to them. He recognizes our helplessness. He has mercy on us in our helplessness. He has compassion on us in our helplessness. And Jesus came to this world and they pierced his hands and his feet. And he died like a paralytic so that we could be healed. The next thing I want us to see in this story, the next power truth is his friend's part in the miracle. And what we see is his friends were a big part of the miracle. It says in verse 3, they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by <clears throat> four men. So Jesus performed the miracle. Jesus brought salvation to this man's life. Jesus was the hero, but look at what an important role these four friends played in this story. They carried him to Jesus. They were the ones who took the time to get him up on the roof and cut the hole in the roof and drop this guy down. And this idea of carrying a person to Jesus is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. God joins his people with him on the mission to make the mission a success. God doesn't just do it alone. Think about the Israelites when, when they were enslaved by Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. God meets a shepherd named Moses at the burning bush and he says, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people crying out for deliverance and I'm sending you. You see that? God unites the cry of the Israelites for deliverance. He says, I've come down to deliver them. 
And God doesn't just bypass Moses. He uses Moses as a vessel. When Israel cries out for deliverance, God sends a person. And in a sense, <clears throat> Moses became like one of the friends of the paralytic, carrying the Israelite people to God, carrying the Israelite people to their inheritance and their blessing in God. So in the book of Exodus, it was Moses. In this story, it's the four friends. So let's turn it on ourselves. How will you, how will I, what will I do to carry my friends to Jesus? What will you do to carry your friends to Jesus? They're spiritually helpless and need grace to come to Jesus, just like this man. They, they, they can't get there on, the, uh, you know, on their own. The Bible says that until God resurrects our dead hearts through Christ, we are spiritually dead. Dead people can't do anything. You could even put life serum in a coffin next to a dead guy. And he can't do a thing to reach out and grab it and drink it, even though it's going to save him. He needs resurrection. He needs God. And he needs help. And God uses us in that mission to bring people to Jesus so they can receive his resurrection life and power. Every spiritual paralytic needs friends who love them enough to carry them in prayer, to show the way to Jesus through the gospel and through love. Are you praying for your friends? Are you loving them in the name of Jesus? Are you showing the way to Jesus through the gospel? You know, Isaiah 6, Isaiah hears a voice say, who will go for who? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah just freely offers himself without condition and says, here am I, send me. And boy, isn't that just a great, one of the great ways we can respond in worship to God is by offering our lives without condition and saying, Lord, use me. Use me like these four friends of the paralytic. Use me like you used Moses to bring your message, to bring your love, to pray for people, to carry them to Jesus. The fourth power truth we see is that Jesus was special. So we saw the paralytic's greatest need. We saw the, the, the paralytic's helplessness and how important it was to recognize that. We saw the role of the friends and, and how God used uh, friends to bring this man to Jesus. And now we see that Jesus is special. He's He's something different. Verse 10, <clears throat> but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose up, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw <clears throat> anything like this. <clears throat> the people observing this story were amazed at Jesus and began to believe in him. Why? Well, let's go back to the text. I mean, the scribes say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew they were watching the power of God. And they were watching a Messiah who was making massive claims about himself and affirming those massive claims through the miracles he was doing. And the scribes said, who can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus, through forgiving this man, is saying, I'm him, I'm the guy. We never saw anything like this. 
they began to believe in him. And this story should amaze us too, because it tells us who he is, that he's not just a good teacher or another prophet in a long line of prophets or a revolutionary or a humanitarian. He is the son of God. He's God the son. Perhaps you've heard the famous argument C.S. Lewis shared about the person of Jesus and how we ought to believe and how we ought to wrestle with the claims of Christ in his famous argument that he made, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Listen to this quote. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who claims he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And not, listen, this is me talking now, not even his enemies uh, were left with the option of saying, this is just a great moral teacher. They knew what he was doing. They knew what he was claiming when he was forgiving sins when he claimed to exist before Abraham. They, when he called God Father, er, earlier in the book, it says that uh, Jesus, uh, that they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. That, that, that actually might be the Gospel of John. But Jesus is not just any man. If God came to earth, what would you expect his life to look like? Miracles? Walking on water? Signs and wonders? Confronting the corrupt, the religious, the corrupt religious community, confronting the corrupt political community. I am telling you, Jesus lived exactly that life. There are four things that testify that Jesus is the son of God, that he was God on earth. You look at Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. All four of those things were supernatural. He was born of a virgin. His birth was amazing. You know, the Christmas story and the angelic visitations and, and the, the, the guiding star and, and his virgin birth. I mean, it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. We never saw anything like this. His life was full of miracles. He cast out demons. He opened blind eyes. He healed lepers. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. His death was marked by incredible signs and wonders. The temple veil was torn in two. There was earthquakes. There was resur people resurrecting from the dead and walking around. The, the sky turned dark in the middle of the day. His resurrection, he is not here, he is risen. All of these testify that Jesus is unique. He is special. He is the son of God. Have you considered and embraced his claims about himself? Don't listen to liars in this world who tell you that he was just a great teacher, just a humanitarian, you know, just a, a revolutionary. No, he was much more. To know him and to 
conclude correctly about him is to conclude the only conclusion we can come to is who he said he is. He's the son of God. I remember talking about the four uh, witnesses of the authenticity of Christ as the son of God, his birth, life, death, and resurrection. I remember talking about that when I did a multi-city tour with our band Isaiah 6 in Turkey some years ago. And uh, I'll never forget, it was just amazing being in a country where some people hadn't even ever heard the gospel. And this young female, a young woman, college student came up to me and she goes, you said something amazing tonight. I said, yeah, what's that? She said, you said that Jesus rose from the dead? Is this true? She never heard it. I mean, can you imagine being in a world where you never heard about the virgin birth or feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus' death on the cross or that Jesus rose from the dead? She never heard it. And it testified to her heart that Jesus is the Christ. Christ the King, seeing Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're doing. We're seeing who he is. How should we respond today? Number one, admit your helplessness and come to Jesus. Just like this paralytic. I can't. I'm lost. I can't heal myself. I can't fix myself. I, like all people, have sinned and fall short of God's standard, fall short of your glory. And come to him like the paralytic did and hear those words. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Look, in, look deep into his eternal eyes and hear him say, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your heart can hear that if you come to him in faith. Believe that he's the one. He's the one for you. Go to him. Look into his eyes and let him say to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's your greatest need. That's your deepest need. Let your heart hear that when you come to him in faith and repentance. But we can only do that when we admit our helplessness. Then we can truly come to him. And second, I want to encourage you to become the friend of the spiritual paralytics around you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you even now. Let faces pass before your mind's eye. Let names enter your mind of people that maybe you could be a part of carrying them to Jesus. I remember the famous story of George Mueller, the hero of England, who started orphanages that were responsible for some 3,000, was it 3,000? I don't know if I have my numbers right. 3,000 children. I think it might have been more. But he prayed for five friends of his that they would come to know Jesus. And the first four came to Christ in his lifetime, but the fifth one did not. Somebody came to him and they said, you're still praying for that guy? You think he's going to get saved? George Mueller said, how can he not get saved? I'm praying for him. Love it. I'm, I, I'm holding, I, I'm one of the four friends, just like the story of the paralytic. I'm one of the four friends holding his mat, bringing him to Jesus. You think Jesus is going to deny this guy? I'm carrying him to Jesus. I love it. Who are you carrying to Jesus in prayer? Let's pray. Let's pray for you. Let's pray for them. Father, help us to see our helplessness and in our helplessness to turn to you in faith and see your eternal eyes and hear your eternal voice saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. Help us, Lord, to become the friend of the spiritually lost around us, the spiritual, uh, spiritual paralytics around us, the spiritually dead around us. Help us to carry them in prayer 
in love, in good works, in good deeds, and in sharing the gospel with them. Father, we, we bring them to you in our hearts. We bring them to you and ask Jesus, would you move in their hearts that they would be saved? Help us, Lord, to be a part of that story in the days to come. And I thank you, Lord, for this time we've had together around your word. In Jesus' name. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you're listening on our podcast, uh, so grateful that you would join us around the word of God. And until next time, remember, Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.